everyone. Good morning. It's Anna J. Wellner with the Author Library. And today I am pleased to have with me author Edward M. Lerner. Edward, would you like to introduce yourself? Yeah, hi. I am, as Anna said, uh, an author. And before that, I was a scientist and an engineer. I worked at some pretty interesting places over the years, Bell Labs, Honeywell, Northrop Grumman, uh, Hughes Aircraft. And since I write science fiction, that those are some great places to be from. Yes, absolutely. I'm sure that a lot of experience that uh, that you've had in the past is, has helped uh, in the the writing of your books. So uh, yes, uh, Edward M. Lerner is a science fiction author. And your latest book, Deja Doomed, uh, has such an interesting premise. Uh, can you tell us more about it? I mean, the reviews are amazing. I'm delighted with the reviews. And my personal favorite uh, from a previous interview was, holy crap, this is a great book. Okay, talking about the book. So lots of science fiction deals with uh, meeting aliens for the first time, them finding us or us finding them. And I've written books like that. I am still fascinated with the premise, but I wanted to do something different. And the way I did things differently was to make the encounter disjoint in time. That's to say, we don't actually meet aliens. We find relics uh, that were left behind eons ago. Now, the only way you can keep relics around for eons is to not keep them on Earth. Earth has weather and earthquakes, and you wait long enough, and the continents drift, and one uh, collapses underneath another. I put my relics on the moon. and. You know, the moon is a vacuum, so you don't have to worry about uh, bacteria eating things. Right. And if you put things underground in uh, lava tunnels, which are naturally occurring caves, the temperature is constant at about minus 30 degrees. Stuff lasts forever. So that's the premise. And in the near future, uh, when we all hope, at least we science fiction types, Hope there are people living on the moon. Uh, there's the opportunity to uh, encounter such a relic. I also put it into a Cold War, not a Cold War, a, a, um, a space race setting. I've got Americans, Russians, and Chinese all on the moon, and everyone would like to uh, have a monopoly on this alien technology if they can find it, if they can reverse engineer the relics. So that is, that's it. Uh, I mean, that right there, I'm invested in the book uh, from just hearing you describe it. I love things uh, like that that are written so uh, well from a scientific standpoint. And it does take a lot to, uh, to really write a science fiction book well, because unlike fantasy, uh, there are rules that you must abide by uh that are you know rooted in in science itself so you must have some background and degrees uh in in science i do i have a d 
degree in physics and a graduate degree in computer engineering. And I worked for aerospace companies for much of my career. For seven years, I was at Hughes Aircraft, which is a company that doesn't exist anymore. It's been swallowed by Raytheon, which is a huge aerospace company. So for seven years, I was a NASA contractor. I worked on what was at the time NASA's third largest program, the Earth Observing System. A different part of Hughes developed training simulators for NASA. So I got to uh, play around with the, uh, the space shuttle training simulator. I crashed it every time, but it was a simulator, so that's okay thing has the aerodynamic properties of a brick. I uh, wandered around in the International Space Station simulator. Uh, I saw the neutral buoyancy pool, which is where uh, astronauts train for spacewalks. It's, a, it's the world's largest swimming pool, basically, with a uh, well-maintained level of uh, salt and other chemicals in it. So you're not buoyant. You don't sink. You, you kind of float around. It's not exactly like being in space because all that water uh, keeps you from moving things quickly, but it's the closest you can come on Earth. So long story short, uh, I got to do lots of neat things that uh, became grist for later stories. Well, so you've been uh, here. Did you actually, did you work in Houston? Because the Johnson Space Center is right uh, down the road from me. Um, so the, uh, I've, I've been there several times. I've been there. Most of my work was for Goddard Space Center okay. in the D.C. metro area. And that's where okay. I live. But sure, I've been to Johnson several times. That's where the simulators are. I was talking about, and I've been to Cape Canaveral to watch a shuttle launch. Uh, as I said, it's great background for uh, an aspiring science fiction author. Absolutely. Um, I know I've always been fascinated with the fact, you know, uh, you know, we are, what did Carl Sagan say? Uh, we are all the stuff of stars. So, yes. uh, uh, you you may not realize it, but we actually have a lot of uh, alien matter here on Earth um, because you know it's 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 uh, minor particulates. Uh, you have stardust on your rooftop, um, yes. believe it or not. So I I, I love science fiction. I love uh, I love science in general. And I'm, <laughs> I'm a little bit of a geek. I'm sorry. <laughs> no reason to be sorry. I'm all in favor of that. And among the reasons I write, I like to think I inspire some young folk to get into science and engineering, as happened with me. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's amazing whenever you read a book like yours, you know, the simple act of Googling something, a terminology uh, or a, a term that you've used, uh, then uh, that leads people on a quest to discover more about that particular topic. And then whether they know it or not, they deserve uh, or uh, derive a passion for it. And then you've most likely inspired someone to uh, expand their knowledge base, or even, you know, uh, decide 
that that's what they want to what field they want to go into. Yeah. Even if they don't Google, I like to think that reading my book, they'll learn some stuff by osmosis. Well, in the Sherlock uh, Chronicles and the Paradise Quartet, we see an entirely new spin on the classic Sherlock Holmes, which is set in the future. I'm equally as fascinated with this book as well, which also has rave reviews. Okay. Uh, the second book you mentioned, Sherlock Chronicles and Paradise Quartet, is in a way two books in one. When I was growing up, and first getting into science fiction, one of the greatest uh, ways to find the stuff was on uh, paperback racks in drugstores and groceries, things you don't really see anymore. And one of the most popular uh, types of science fiction was the Ace Double. It was two short novels in one paperback. You read one, flip the book over, read the other, two separate covers. And this book is kind of in that, uh, in that mode. It's an homage. So uh, the Sherlock Chronicles is four cases of a futuristic detective. And the Paradise Quartet is an unrelated uh, series of stories I can talk about uh, separately. But you, you asked about Sherlock. My Sherlock. Yeah, my Sherlock. Uh, is a bored artificial intelligence who has all those endless nanoseconds he needs to fill on his supercomputer. And uh, one day he's approached by a person with a thorny problem and he figures, what could the harm be in helping this, uh, you know, slow-witted human solve her problem? Well, yes, there was some harm. And in his successive cases, the stakes get uh, higher and higher. Uh, and uh, some of the situations he faces are eventually existential. Oh, wow. So we do see a little bit of uh, self-awareness come into the AI uh, situation here. Oh, he's entirely self-aware. Entire, entirely yeah. self-aware. Okay. And one of the things he uh, comments on is no artificial intelligence is self-aware until quantum computing comes around because... It, Awareness and intelligence are not algorithms. It takes something random, and quantum mechanics is inherently random. So he's running on a quantum computer. His uh, quantum mind uh, peers are all running in uh, other quantum computers, and a lot of the constraints on them are tied into quantum mechanics, which is one of uh, the topics that fascinates me, quantum mechanics. Wow, I, I would love to pick your brain and talk more about that quantum physics and quantum mechanics, especially uh, with computing nowadays. I mean, we will. Do you think that we will eventually get to that point in society? Do you think that um, that that's a possibility? I mean, with the rate that technology is uh, developing and exploding, uh, do you think that's a possibility? Computers are a very young technology. And I think it would be very odd if they have already plateaued. So yes. yes, I expect them to go a lot farther. In terms of quantum computing specifically, those have been built. Uh, they're still pretty modest. The, uh, uh, 
the requirement for a practical quantum computer is to have thousands of quantum bits. And uh, because of the, the difficulty of the technology at this point, we're lucky to be able to maintain a few dozen quantum bits. So there are some practical challenges before we can uh, scale up. Quantum bits uh, are inherently extremely fragile things. And in fact, that complication factors into uh, some of my Sherlock's adventures. He's incidentally, he doesn't always think of himself as Sherlock. He thinks of himself from time to time as all sorts of uh, famous uh, fictional detectives. He starts out in a noir mode, you know, more of a my camera sort of thing. Uh, he has a lot of personality. He was a lot of fun to write. I bet. And then, uh, then the other book that you mentioned, uh, The Paradise Quartet, can you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. Okay. That's another set of four stories, hence the quartet. And that began in uh, a novelette I wrote uh, way back in something like 2007. And uh, that was also trying to look at a familiar science fiction trope and doing something different with it. The trope there was the generation ship. In the typical generation ship story, it's uh, only possible to travel between stars comparatively slowly. Uh, you build a ship that can sustain uh, basically a mobile town for generations until they can get to the other side. And by the time they get there, they've always, for story purposes, conveniently forgotten why they want to do it. Or they have adjusted to life uh, traveling this way, and they see no reason to move to a planet with dangerous animals on it. Okay, so my spin on it was, yeah, they got there fine. They knew why they wanted to get there. Their ship was falling apart, in fact, and they were eager to get off. The problem was, in order to establish themselves, uh, they had to adjust themselves. They had to change their own biology to live there. And then instead of the disaster happening on the trip, the disaster happened after they successfully got down to the planet. So the first story had a disaster I will not describe. And then the, the rest of the series, the remaining four planets, uh, were the slow... Uh, evolution of what happened to these people and their slow crawl back to technology. Wow. So, so it's almost has a little bit of a mix of a dystopian feel uh, with, uh, and, and it sounds as if you blended in genetics and evolution and adaptation into the stories as well as part of human nature, which we all have to do from time to time. We're going to have to do it here pretty soon, getting back into the real world. <laughs> well, I hope that uh, the effects of climate change aren't nearly as catastrophic as what I did to uh, my characters. I will uh, fine tune one of your interpretations of the stories. Things get bad, but I don't do dystopias. Ah. I'm optimistic enough that I think if we set our minds to things, we can usually dig ourselves out. You know, the first law of holes is when you find yourself in one, stop digging. Great advice. Great advice. Great life advice. <laughs> um, so how did you, I mean, I, I 
we've already answered this, how you found yourself drawn to the genre of science fiction. I mean, uh, just having a passion for science in and of itself. So how much research goes into each book? Because unlike fantasy, in sci-fi, there are rules. So uh, how long does it typically take you to work through the uh, research process? What is that like uh, as, an, as, as a science fiction author? On average, it takes me about a year to do a book. And for the first few months, that's heavily oriented towards the research because the science and the technology that's available to the characters represent a set of constraints. And until I know how hard things are for the characters and what they can and cannot do and how fast they can get from here to there and what could kill them and how they can kill bad guys, if that's appropriate. All of those sorts of things need to be worked out iteratively with developing the plot. And then it's six to nine months to write the story. Yeah. Research takes a lot of uh, different forms. Okay, in this day and age and being a computer guy, obviously a lot of it is on the internet. And although there's a lot of garbage on the internet, if uh, you know how to vet your sources. There are lots of reliable sources. Uh, I buy a lot of books. And uh, I see, I see that. <laughs> you, you can see on Zoom uh, the bookshelves behind me. Yeah. Uh, and a lot more that are in Kindle that you can't see. And when I think I understand a topic, or if I figure out that I really don't, I often reach out to experts. One of the best things about being an author is all the experts out there who are eager to, uh, to help out. And so uh, I have lots of opportunities to interact with you know, really brilliant people uh, if I have questions about things. I'm gonna tell my favorite anecdote about interacting with experts. I kind of have a little bit of a crush on Neil deGrasse Tyson. You, you don't know him, do you? <laughs> I don't. Okay. Uh, okay. So several years ago, I was doing research for a novel, one of whose main characters was a radio astronomer. The book is called Energized, by the way. And part of the plot was going to be set at a radio uh, astronomy observatory, go figure. I happen to live a few hours away from the Green Bank Observatory, which is one of the branches of the National Radio Astronomy Observatory, which has facilities all around the country. I reached out to the public affairs officer and asked if I could possibly meet with an astronomer or two. And she said, why don't you come on out and take the public tour and I'll set up interviews for you. And if you can come on a Wednesday, you can come to our weekly staff lunch and introduce yourself and maybe you'll hear some stuff that's useful. I thought this was way cool. And of course I did all of that. When I introduced myself and said I was there, all of a sudden, all of these engineers and scientists and astronomers uh, wanted to brainstorm details of the plot with me and they spent their lunch hour helping me work out nuances of plot. Isn't that amazing? Oh, it was terrific. 
Oh, wow. That is, that, that would be like, oh, that would be so cool. Um, and I, guys, I cannot list, um, as, as he's already mentioned, you know, a couple of books that I haven't brought up. I cannot list um, all of you have quite the catalog more than I can possibly cover on the show. How long have you been, uh, how long have you been publishing? How, how long have you been an author? I started writing in the mid eighties, but it was slow going because of the pesky day job. And my priority had to be, right. you know, I had a family and kids who would eventually go to college. Right. Um, my first novel was published in 1991. The second one was not out until 2005. That gives you an idea of uh, the, the pesky other priorities. Yes. Okay. Very familiar. Yeah. The second novel sold in 2004. And a couple months after that, I said to myself, okay, if you sell two, the first one really wasn't a fluke. Maybe you can do this full time. And by that point, I'd been doing the uh, full-time techie thing for 30 years, and I was ready to do something different as much as I enjoyed it. So in 2004, I took the plunge. I gave up the day job. I started writing full-time, and I've been at it ever since. I haven't, I haven't regretted it. No. My wife says I'm much happier in uh, this job than uh, the day job. And so the two books we primarily talked about, Deja Doomed and Sherlock Paradise, are books 21 and 22. So the pace <laughs> picked up after I was doing it full time. They, uh, I brought those up because they are the newest releases that you have. Um, so uh, I just, um, but, but uh, I have everyone, make sure that you check out uh, the links in the description below for uh, Edward's uh, Amazon page, uh, author page, so that you can see his entire collection of books. That would be commendable. <laughs> what uh, what, what yeah, would ahead. you say, I mean, I think that you already answered this. Uh, you, what is the best part of being uh, an author for, for you? I did mention it, and that's that access to all these uh, wonderful experts, uh, a, a variation on that beyond interacting with them, <coughs> is just that it focuses my curiosity. It's one thing to say, gee, I would like to learn about, pick a topic, uh, nanotechnology. It's hard to focus. It's hard to know where to start. It's hard to maintain the interest. But if I say, I'm going to write a book about nanotechnology, uh, then there are particular uh, aspects of it that I get to, to deal in. And I did write such a book. It's called Small Miracles. And the quote unquote miracles in question were nanobots used for medical purposes that swim around in our body and uh, repair things from the inside. Of course, in any novel, something has to go horribly wrong. And so I got to look into both, okay, what could go horribly wrong? And then what would responsible uh, engineers and scientists do to prevent things from, go horribly, from going horribly wrong? And then how could they go horribly wrong anyway? And how could the technology be abused? Uh, 
And so it was a lot of fun. And I had so much fun doing that research and got so far into it that a biophysicist I was working with said, you know, Ed, this is a novel. You can stop now. <laughs> that's, that's amazing. Nanotechnology, correct me if I'm wrong, but we're not quite there yet. Um, it's, it's, it's very much still a theory at this, uh, at this point and a work in progress, but it is something that, that is truly interesting to me. Can you explain a little bit about what nanotechnology is? I know that people have heard the word bandied around, but may not actually know what it means. Okay. And nanotechnology, like artificial intelligence, like quantum computing, is one of these terms that's been overhyped so much that right. we really need new terms. <laughs> At its simplest level, nanotechnology just means building things at the scale of nanometers, which is a trillionth of a meter. So our familiar uh, microelectronics is at the level of microns. And even in the most modern microelectronics, uh, we're dealing with uh, artifacts whose smallest components are 20 or 30 uh, atoms across. In nanotechnology, we're dealing more with individual atoms. And there are degrees of nanotechnology, what kind of sophistication we try to deal with. The simplest level of nanotechnology, and to some extent we're there, is trying to build defect-free materials. It's too expensive to build anything practical that way. But if, for sake of argument, you could avoid defects in steel, just common everyday steel, right. it would be many times stronger than the stuff that's built today. And if you build stuff that's many times stronger, you don't have to use as much of it and you can make things smaller and lighter. You could build a car that would weigh a few hundred pounds instead of a few thousand pounds. And it would be just as strong and uh, just as good at defending you in a, in a crash. Um, carbon nanotubes are probably the, the sexiest nanotech these days. A carbon nanotube uh, is basically uh, carbon atoms arranged in the same shape as chicken wire. And if you roll a sheet of this uh, uh, carbon molecule into a tube, it has wonderful properties. It's extremely strong, depending how you make it. It can be uh, very low resistance. It can be a conductor or it can be uh, a semiconductor. And so you can build electronics out of it. And a lot of what I did in the novel Small Miracles is based on carbon nanotube technology. That's all what's practical in nanotech. The kind of stuff that's not yet practical is building complex machines that right. are still small enough to move around in you. So uh, for people who are old enough to remember the movie, The Fantastic Voyage, it had submarines <laughs> swimming around in a human. Uh, we're not there yet. No, not yet. Yeah. So well, a lot that's been done in nanotech and a lot yet to go. Well, uh, it has been a fantastic pleasure having you on today. And I just 
uh, I, I enjoyed getting to talk, uh, letting my geek side out for, for a little while and getting to talk with you about, uh, about your books and, and the science behind them. So thank you so much for, your, for coming on the show today. My pleasure, Anna. All right, guys, as always, make sure that you subscribe uh, to the channel so that you don't miss out on more great upcoming uh, guests and content. And uh, everyone out there, stay safe, stay healthy, and we will see you again soon. Bye. Bye.